Welcome to this special session of the Newcastle Writers' Festival on Their Right to Rage with Jane Gilmore and Ruby Hamad. I'm your host, Trisha Pender from the University of Newcastle, and I am delighted to be talking anger with you this morning. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which I'm speaking, the Pamelong clan of the Awabakal people, and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I want to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and I think it's especially important to recognise that in the context of a conversation about women's anger, we need to acknowledge that that initial act of colonisation, of dispossession, and theft, is one of the things that justifiably motivates Indigenous women's anger today. That's their particular right to rage. So I want to bear that in mind as we keep talking. So, to introduce you to our guests, Jane Gilmore was the founding editor of the King's Tribune. She's now a freelance journalist and an author with a particular interest in feminism, media and data journalism. She has a Master's in Journalism from the University of Melbourne and her book, Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media, was published by Penguin Random House in August 2019. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Tricia. It's great to be here. Great. Ruby Hamad is an author, media writer and academic, a former columnist at Fairfax and its feminist flagship, Daily Life. Her work has appeared in international mastheads, The Guardian, Prospect Magazine and The New Arab, as well as local outlets, Crikey and The Saturday Paper. It was her article for The Guardian in May 2018, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour, that inspired the writing of her first book, White Tears, Brown Scars, which came out from Melbourne University Press last year. Ruby holds a Master's of Media Practice from the University of Sydney and is currently a PhD candidate in Media and Postcolonial Studies at UNSW. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you for having me. It's great to be part of this. Fantastic. I also want to let our virtual audience know that you can respond to our conversations online, whether you're viewing on YouTube or the Facebook page, and contribute your comments or your emojis um, as we talk. We may have lost the chance to hear your questions in real time, but that doesn't mean that you can't be part of this conversation. You can. We want you to be. So please join us. Okay. Both of these books we're talking about today, Jane's Fixed It and Ruby's White Tears, Brown Scars, draw their inspiration from work that each of you did previously the Fixed It Project for Jane and the article that you wrote for The Guardian, Ruby. Could you describe these projects for the audience, some of whom might not be familiar with them? So, Jane, what is Fixed It? Uh, Fixed It started just as a very simple process of drawing a red, red line, line terrible headlines about men's violence against women and rewriting them so that the perpetrators are not erased, the violence is not erased, the victims are not blamed and women are not dehumanised. So that, um, you know, for example, that if a man is violent to a woman who's a sex worker, 
sex worker or more usually prostitute is the way she is described. So she's not a person, she's her job. And because of the way people who do sex work are perceived and women's moral worth is so tied up in their sexual purity that it becomes implicit victim blaming. All these things happen in headlines in ways that we don't even notice and they reinforce preconceptions of race, sexuality, sexism, gender, so many different things without us even knowing that it happens. So Fixed It was just supposed to be, happened kind of by accident, but it was just a, a visual correction so that people will start noticing it when they see it without it being corrected. And the one thing that I was actually really proud of through the whole four years I've been doing this and then writing the book is that actually seems to have happened now and I get people doing sending fixes to me that they've done that other people do more of them than I do now, which I think is brilliant. That was what it was always what it was supposed to be. Yeah, that's fantastic. Could you tell us just the basic bits about where it is, like what platform it's on, where can people find it? It's mostly uh, spread out across a couple of different places, but it's all collected on my website, so janegilmore.com. Um, or if you just search Jane Gilmore and fixed it, I think it, um, there's a few MRA sites and then me. So you'll <laughs> Great. Fantastic. So, Ruby, what set this book in train for you? Um, sorry, can you just repeat that question again? I got a very rare occurrence these days, but an airplane did just go up overhead. So. <laughs> okay. Um, can you uh, tell us what set this project right. in train for you? Um, so it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, this is about uh, anger and how where women uh, across the board uh, uh, are denied uh, their anger oftentimes. And what my, what my article was uh, looking at was the way in which uh, when women of colour, by which I mean any woman who's not racialized as white in our society and I know there's there's then you're getting two layers within that but for now let's just keep that that broad um we're positioned as angry whether or not we are in, in angry in that moment and what the flow-on effect of that is that it does invalidate our actual anger because we're we're just well it's just um positioned as uh, you know the eternally angry brown women and angry black women we you know we are we are all familiar with those tropes mm. and so I wanted to that's what my article was about was was okay I get that sometimes I get angry but sometimes I'm not sometimes I'm just trying to pour down a problem sometimes I think I'm being constructive sometimes I'm being I'm actually very hurt uh, but when I have these interactions, increasingly um, I've found with 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 some of my white women, whether they're friends or colleagues, I was immediately positioned as uh, as being unduly angry and unreasonably um, hurtful, etc. And I started to see, you know, when these things happen, you know, something happens to you, you start to get a bit of salience about it and you start seeing it everywhere and you're like, oh, those tweets are familiar and that article and look at that video. And I was, I was like, is this, is this way more systematic than I thought? Now, now we know about, um, um, you know, the way in which, um, you know, historical concepts like, the, you know, the damsel in distress was used, the white damsel in distress was used as a means of, Supposedly protecting a white a white woman, but really subordinating her, and using her uh, the need to protect her as a means of, of subjugating the colonized populations. Uh, mm -hmm. What I 
tapped into, into that article, obviously I didn't explore and I got the chance to do that in the book, was the way in which these old tropes are still alive. And, and because for so many generations, uh, racialized people, including racialized women, have been positioned as angry and irrational, we're still cast in that mold today, even though it's it's so much more subversive and and, and subliminal now. Whereas when I wrote that article, I was just asking, why is this happening so often? Why is it every time I speak to one of my white friends or white colleagues, she turns it around on me and all of a sudden I'm either apologising or I'm being um, basically told to suck it up and, and my issues are not being discussed and then I talked about it with other women of colour and I saw all these articles. I was like, I think this is happening a lot and what's behind it? And then it goes back to this issue of anger yeah. and the problem with that is anger, like, you know, anger is a healthy response to sustained mistreatment. And, and, and as women, I'm sure you can agree with me on that. When you're being mistreated all this, for a long time, if you're going to get angry. So when our anger is denied and we're told we can't be angry, whether it's as women in general or whether it then becomes a dynamic between white women and non-white women, not being allowed to get angry means we're essentially have to be supplicant all the time and we can never ever address issues and it just keeps us all exactly you know where we are in in this system yeah it um it's another form of silencing in a way if you can't Absolutely. you can't be angry can you tell us how the tears come into the equation you talk about the white woman's tears how do tears work with the anger well i mean the the idea is that the tears and that doesn't, that should not always be taken literally. It's not always about crying actual uh, tears. It, it has become that but way. Figuratively. It is. And I, I just wanted to sort of stress that for the people. But the, the way that it works with the anger is is that it, it makes, it, it positions everything that's happening between, say, the, that interaction between a white woman and a non-white woman. It positions everything that's happening as an attack on the person who's crying and now the person who's crying is almost always the white women not being there's nothing sort of intrinsic or biological about it it's it's a socialized response um of which goes back to the innocence and the protection and, and the virtue yeah. the you know the the angry irrational uh brown and, and and black people that that has to be you know that's that's the sort of the long-term implication here is that there's this there's this uh uh, what's what's you know what's wordless? I'll just say perception for lack of a better word that we always we always there, there has to be a lift a lid kept on us so that we don't kind of like uh, explode and, and you know run riot. Yeah, and I think this idea of demonizing our anger is a way uh, is a prime way of doing that because it just it just means that nothing we're ever angry or upset about in the slightest is legitimate, and yeah. then it also that flow on effect is that. Even when we're not angry, even if we're just being assertive or blunt or straightforward or neutral, even where where it's very easy to position us as, as being angry, and that again is something that happens with with women. You just open your mouth sometimes, as women in general, and you're angry. Um, yes, the angry woman, the nasty woman. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think too, isn't it that, that anger is powerful? Being angry is an expression of power mm, and yes. so it's something that any powerful group doesn't want their oppressed groups to have that power. 
Yes. You have to take it away from them in some way. Yeah, because it's active rather than turning the anger in upon yourself, which is you know self-punishing. It's it's affirmative. Yeah. We're going to get to anger in a second. Um, I wanted to say that with both of these books, there's this clear sense of urgency. They're very much of the moment and they issue clear calls for social change. So you, Ruby, you write in White Tears, Brown scars that white women and white feminism need to own their complicity with the colonial project mm-hmm. and acknowledge the ways that they have benefited from racism, both historically and continuingly. Can you talk about why this is so important? What are white women, white women doing wrong and what do they need to do to change? Right, so it's 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 so much more intricate than just, well, this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you have to yeah. do, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about an entire like, system of being, uh, political, economic, legal, social, uh, you know, everything system. And so the way in which white women have been um, sort of agents of white supremacy is in navigating their own subordination, you know, within white, you know, what we call white white patriarchy. What, uh, and I'll, I'll give some examples in a moment. But what 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 they've actually organised, what they've actually done, is to challenge their lower positioning to white men, without um, acknowledging or challenging what the other layers of that hierarchy is. So what yeah. what I say in the book is that. What colonialism did, European colonialism did, is created a binary between white women and other racialized women. So it obviously happened differently depending where it was where it was occurring. And so what this binary did is what it, it established. You know, the white women, as long as they act proper, let's just, just let's just clarify. And as long as they were middle class and above, again, white women, poor white women, sex workers were not included in this mm. virtuous damsel trope. So as long as they acted the proper, you know, the angel in the house then they were given that virtue, that protection, that elevation, and they were the binary opposite of the colonised women who were initially presented as, as hypersexual and objectified and no morals and animalistic and barbaric. And, and then as, uh, you know, time went on and the colonised began to resist colonisation, that's when the tropes have been angry. So, so you can see that, that how that, um, that dynamic shifted, right? Their resistance to colonialism, to oppression, was to position them as angry. Invalidate the anger. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in, in terms of what women were doing, so uh, those examples of white women navigating that that uh, their subordination without actually addressing the ultimate benefit of of uh, white supremacy with, yeah. uh, is uh, yeah. Well, like suffrage, suffragists is a, the, the probably. Uh, one of the most well-known examples now, especially in the, yeah. in the US, where it's becoming increasingly known how uh, a lot of white suffragists, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were opposed to suffrage for black men yeah. because they, didn't, they felt that they deserved it more or they didn't want to then be subjugated by black men as well as white men. So they were already acknowledging, right, there was this hierarchy. It wasn't just man and woman. Uh, and in other places, so, uh, you know, in a in Australia, there and I talk about this in the book and in the US as well, 
the removal of Indigenous children uh, was, yes, those policies were signed off by the men in politics, the men in power, but uh, the majority of the time, up to 75% of the time, the women in the organisations that were actually taking the children well, was women. The people taking the children was white women. And they did this and they they did it, and Margaret Jacobs talks about this in, in her book, you know, the, 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 the great white mother or the white, white mother to a dark race, my, my mistake, was that they positioned it as women's work for women because as women they were more well-placed to cater to the needs of Indigenous children and women mm-hmm. than white men were. Do you see what I mean about navigating? Yeah. So yeah. they wanted to resist. They wanted to work outside the home. They wanted to challenge this idea of, of having to be this angel in the house. But rather than challenge racism, they worked within it to yeah. help themselves live themselves up yeah um, and how that how's that manifesting today well I mean you know we, we can talk about you know the white women voter in the US and we scratch our heads like why do they vote for sex you know sexual assaulters why how does yeah. how does a man like you know Kavanaugh who you know has not it wasn't just Christine Ford that, that that made allegations incredible allegations against him other women stepped forward and yet you still have women voting for him. Why is that? And it's not it's not so simple as they're choosing their gender or their, their race over their gender. It's about mm-hmm. how gender was racialized. So, so the idea of what a woman really is, which is the virtuous and the innocent and not getting angry, is something that was reserved for white women only. Right. So, um, yeah. Sorry, this is a long-winded answer. So what white women have to, well, first of all, we need to see all this history. And and I and I guess it's hard to sort of prescribe definitive actions for, mm-hmm. for other women because I don't know what it's like to be a white woman. Yes. Uh, what I can say is that, Without an explicitly anti-racist and, and by which I, you know, anti-white supremacist and not just the KKK white supremacy, just the, 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 the white domination um, with, uh, you know, controlling everything, being the, the, the majority of our, um, uh, you know, political system, our legal system, our media system. Uh, without that in feminism, then it's always going to perpetuate this binary between white women and all other women, which in turn is going to keep white power and white male power continuing the way it is. Um, yes. Because there's a limit, as Christine Ford learned, there's a limit to even how much a white woman can do and say within this, and as Julia Giddard learned indeed, uh, within this system without yes. being punished herself. Yeah, we're going to come back to some of those Australian examples because they're really interesting, I think. Jane, the Fix-It Project and the book that stems from it both call for specific changes in the way that the media reports on violence against women. Can you explain why you think the media's role is so crucial here? What are they doing wrong and what do they need to do differently? Um, So just... Small question there. Just your whole book, basically. <laughs> sum it all up in five minutes. Um, well, part of it is, is sort of related to what Ruby was talking about because I think all these things are actually related, but it's to do with one of the ways that we understand particularly family violence is as a criminal issue, and it's not. It's a human rights issue. It's a health issue. It's an education issue. It's, it's a... A medical issue, it's a feminist issue and in many ways it's these things before it's a legal issue but because we've defined it as being criminal, 
the yeah. way that most of us find out information about what's happening in our courts and what's happening in crime in the society, the world that we live in, is through journalism. So most people don't go and sit in the courts for days on end because they've got stuff to do and so they don't see what's going on. So we're dependent on journalism to be there and tell us what's going on. And what happens most of the time is that even though there are more and more women becoming journalists, they're shuffled off into the lifestyle sections where we talk about cupcakes and vaginas because apparently that's the sort of thing that women like to read about. They go together. <laughs> they do, don't they? Trying to shape cupcakes, maybe. <laughs> but things like politics, finance, and crime are, or um, court reporting, tends to be very dominated by white men. And so, when they're writing about it, they may not, and most of them will get quite angry and defensive when I'm discussing this with them. In that, but I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. And you say, okay, but. One of the, the biggest things about writing is you can't hide what you really think and how you really feel. Because even if you're trying to convince people that you're not sexist, it comes out in the language that you use and the way you describe situations and the things that you notice about them. Yep. So when we're talking about headlines about violence against women, it's almost always presented as an isolated incident, mm. which it never is in family violence. Um, so it, it perpetuates that myth that, that domestic abuse is a series of unrelated, isolated incidents right. and you can find a reason for that one particular incident, which is normally what did she do? Why yeah. did she provoke him? Why did she make him angry? Why wasn't she being nicer to him? Mm-hmm. So those excuses come down to things like, oh, she was, she was cheating, she was being unfaithful, He's a spurned lover. I mean, it was jilted lover, spurned lover. We've all seen that in the headlines. Um, cheating wife. Um, you know, man snaps on discovering affair. Now, most of us at some point have had some experience with infidelity, and it's awful. It hurts. It's it's excruciating. But there are ways to deal with it short of violence. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of different choices you can make. You can choose to just walk out of the house. You can maybe choose to yell. You can choose to go and lie on a friend's couch and cry for days and eat ice cream and watch Netflix or do any whole, whole range of other things that I probably shouldn't talk about because they're really, really Cupcake. Cupcakes. Cupcakes, yes. <laughs> My point is that it's the emotion we may not have any control over. Other people can produce emotions in us that, that we may not want, but we always have choices about our actions. And... What happens in most of the reporting on men's violence against women is that it is implicit that men don't have that responsibility for their choices. That responsibility is always put back onto women. Yeah. So we are responsible for not just creating emotions, but then also for the choices that men make on how they react to that emotion. So you'll get the jilted lover or the, the cheating wife or the, the good guy who just snapped. And what usually they avoid doing in the, the body of the article is explaining context, which is that domestic violence is an ongoing pattern of behaviour designed to humiliate, degradate and control. Control. One particular instance was even if she provoked him, that that's happening in the context of an ongoing abusive relationship and the, the specific incident may very well be problematic, but the relationship and the control in 
inherent in that is actually the problem, not what she did to provoke this one specific incident that he chose to respond to with violence. Yes. Uh, That's the long-winded answer. Um, As to why it happens, I think it's, there's a lot of different reasons. There's a bit of the, well, that's how we've always done it, so that's how we're always going to do it. There's a um, training that goes on in newsrooms that perpetuates a culture based on, again, by Ruby's and my books, which are very, very different, are still working on the same concepts of these ideas permeate so much of everything we do and they they are trained trained into us from babyhood. Yeah. Idea that that strong white successful men are the most powerful creatures on the planet. And then you have sort of progressively stepped down groups that oh you're a woman, oh you're a woman of colour, oh you're a woman of colour with a disability, oh you're a woman of colour with a disability and a sexuality that we don't approve of because it doesn't serve white powerful men. Every avenue that you add to being able to dif- distance yourself from powerful white men is a reason for them to say, well, to shore up our power, we have to maintain those differences and maintain the belief that those differences make you less than. Yeah. So because of all of this stuff, and it's not like they're sitting there stroking a white cat and plotting how that they can, <laughs> it's not conscious. Yeah. Not, Ooh, my evil plan. <laughs> Most of them don't know they're doing it and you try yeah. and explain it to them and they don't believe it. Mm. And they will get very defensive. And I'm sure, really, you've had, I know you've had the same reaction when you try and explain this to people who are, and you can tell that they're doing it. You know that they're doing it. But what it's doing is challenging the things that people need to have belief in their own success and power mm-hmm. and the justification for them having that. And you start challenging that, and people get really, really upset. And I, I kind of understand it, but I think it requires that we have to keep challenging it even more because otherwise the power structures don't change. If you just change what's going on around it, you're just shuffling the deck chairs. Yeah. You have to change the power structures. Yeah. One of the things I found most harrowing about your book, Jane, was the statistics and the data on how many people still believe that a man once aroused cannot control his sexual urges. Mm-hmm. You know, so this complete uh, lack of responsibility and but staggering amounts of people believing that. And it's a weird dichotomy because what we're saying is that that successful white men are the most powerful people on the planet, but at the same time they can't be held accountable for their actions and they can't make their own choices. They can be manipulated into committing violence by evil women. Yeah. And this dichotomy of, but you are the most powerful and you have all this power and everybody else should bow down to you and do what you say because you're the ones that have all the merit. But at the same time, evil women can force you to do things that go against your nature because you're such a good guy. Yeah. So the the inherent just lack of logic in it um, is, I think, again, a reflection of that need to believe in if you are a powerful person, the need to believe in your right to have that power and because you have that power, you can then dictate responsibility or assign responsibility to anybody because you are the one with the power and it helps to keep women oppressed if you tell them that they are, you know, either either the the virtuous woman who needs protection that Ruby was talking about Mm -hmm. or they are 
the evil black widow who's going to to do men wrong. And there's not much in between that. You know, we've been talking about this, the, the whore Madonna complex, the yes. death of God police that um, Anne Summers was writing about decades ago. This trope of, of the, the good woman and the bad woman, and there's nothing else. And by definition, women of colour are bad women because they are fetishised and, sex, and sexualized. And so there's this tiny, tiny little group of of pretty, thin, young, white, submissive, sweet, sexual, sexually available but not sexually aware, this tiny, tiny little group and about half an hour between 24 and 24 and half an hour old where you're allowed to be in that group. And then the rest of the time we are not in that group but we're told to constantly aspire to it. Yeah. And it's a means of control and power. It's, it's like a controlling relationship between two people this is a controlling relationship between a percentage of the population and all the rest of it so the purpose of today is to talk about anger i want to get back to anger the blurb for this session reads throughout history anger has fueled surges in female-led activism but it's having an impact is it having an impact where it matters now and if not why not I think we've got some reverb again. Both of your books are motivated by anger in different ways. Can you talk to us about that? Women, women's anger, white women's anger, brown women's anger, and what is powerful about it? Do you see positives to women's anger? And we might start with you, Ruby, because you talk about who is allowed to be angry. Mm. So I think women, white women, um, like you know, obviously, you know, as Jane was saying, their anger is also um, it's not uh, it's not one of the virtues that that white women are meant to have, um, and I think that in in what what and this has just sort of come to me now, really, listening to to Jane and, and you speak it, is that. A lot of these behaviours, I think, or these actually these dynamics occur between white women and um, and non-white women is is perhaps anger, like white women's anger that is being masked in in tears and masked in victimhood. It's a way of um, pretending it's not there in a way. Just yeah, kind of. And historically, it's been so. Um, denied and so demonized don't don't be angry because you'll be like those you know the the, the people that we're colonizing and they're not really people they're not really human that's 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 one of their characteristics um yeah so you know, people like you know a brown and black woman have never been allowed to be angry um and we're still not without it unless we're angry at our own you know if we're rising up if whether it's protesting governments in the middle east or elsewhere or whether it's um you know i could go on tv tomorrow and uh, you know talk of say if i was to, you know if i was to write an article saying that you know brown women or black women silence me with their tears i'd be like Andrew Bolt's favourite book, Feminist, you know. <laughs> it's all about where it's directed. And yeah. so um, uh, where all women are not meant to be angry and, 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 and what, what happens, I think, with, with white women and white men is if white women are angry towards white men, that's when it's really uh, punished um, because race is off the table, right? Race is no longer considered a dynamic there. It's, it's purely gender. 
Um, but as soon as a white woman is in an interaction with a non-white person, and in particular a woman of colour, I think um, her, you know, it's what, what, I, what I talk about in the book, one up, one down identity, she, she moves from her one down identity, which is woman, to the one up identity, which is white. And it's almost like the rules change. As, you know, as Jane was saying, there's no lodge. Like it's so, it's all a house of cards. It's all, it's an illusion that has been maintained for so long. And it's actually astonishing when you really, when you really think about it. As Jane was saying, those contradictions of, yes, that men are um, supposedly powerful, meritorious, intelligent, and, and yet women somehow can just, you know, uh, flick of her hair or, you know, blink of her eye even, completely control. What is that? And it's a way of projecting. It's a way of sending out that whatever bad thing they do is not them. And then that goes into violence against women. It's not them. The real man is anything that's good that he does, that's really him. Anything that's bad, that's coming at him externally. Mm. And it comes to, like, people of colour, especially women of colour, it's a complete opposite. Anything that's good about us, it's because white people were swear lucky enough that they let us come here. They let us have this, aren't they nice? They're letting one of us go and be on a panel. You know, so yeah, these yeah. kinds of things. But anything that's bad um, about me, well, that's really me. And there was that, that football player, and I, I, sorry, his name missed my mind. He's a, he's a French uh, Algerian football player, and he summed it up. He said, anytime I score, I'm French. Anytime I don't score or something bad happens, yeah. I'm Arab. Right, so yeah. we are intrinsically not good, but anytime we do something good, we get we get you know into we get this sort of this temporary conditional um, acceptance. Um, and so you know, sorry, I'm, I'm always deviate from that from that angle, but you can't just purely talk just about it. There's all these things that feed into it. Yeah. So um, we're only allowed, and this probably goes for all, all women across the world. We're, we're about to be angry when our anger is channeled at what this society deems to be a legitimate target um, and that's not white men. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. And for us, because women of colour are at the bottom, right, and then even within that there's layers and, and hierarchies, but but let's just keep the, the four main hierarchy and, and, of course, not everyone in this is actually would identify or is a woman or a man, but this is how white colonialism and supremacy set it up, was, you know, you had the, 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 the non-white women, non-white men, white women, why men, right? So then within that, and there's there's times where you can flip between and move between depending on the on the circumstances. Um, but what's important in that is that what it's set up is that everyone below the white men is kind of fighting it out. Um, but but what what my sort of my worry or my concern is, and you know, writing that book is that if women, white women and white feminists are are not cognizant of all of these dynamics and how. Uh, feminism, Western feminism, as it as it emerged, did incorporate or emerge out of um, these hierarchies and and and, yeah. and racial oppression. And if they're not addressing that and making an effort and to 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 actually embody it, then by definition, their feminism is going to be that sort of what we call that white feminism that can only benefit them because it's still it's not accepting that gender in the West is, is, is so racialized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's capitalising on white privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And my argument is that ultimately it, it turns back on 
white women, white feminists themselves, because there's always there, there's ne- there's always going to be um, they may lift it up a bit, but there's always going to be a, a limit to to you know what do you want to call it equity, equality, liberation, yeah. so that they can they can achieve because there's we're not addressing these dynamics of um, you know demonization of anger and and the categorization of, of women and 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 non-white people as irrational and, and yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to bring Jane in here. Um, Jane, anger, big part of the work that you do. Um, can you talk? The thing about anger is, firstly, it's an expression of power and also it's a recognition of injustice because that's what makes us angry is the, the seeing the injustice. And so for somebody to say that your anger is legitimate they have to acknowledge the injustice that is making you angry. And humans are unique in our ability to recognise injustice done to others and get angry about that and take action on the behalf on other people's behalf, which we are also unique in our ability to impose oppression on other people that doesn't benefit us particularly. So one of the things that I think um, with what Ruby was talking about is that what so many white feminists don't, who are not doing the sort of intersectional feminism that Ruby was talking about is what they're not recognising. If you're only trying to attack one part of the structures that are oppressing all of us, mm-hmm. you can't pull all those structures down because the, the structures that, that incorporate racism and ableism and homophobia and all those things are based on that idea of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And you can't just pull one bit out of the hierarchy and have it, and unless it all collapses, it's all got to go. You can't just take away one bit and then say, oh, well, that's the bit that was upsetting me. Mm. Leave the rest of it in place because it's still saying that there is a hierarchy. Yeah. We do evaluate women based on these criteria and even if we take one of those criteria out, the the rest of them are still there. So it's an illusion to say, oh, well, as long as we make white women free, then then we're fine and then we can come along and and be the white saviors. I mean, it's it's just bullshit. It doesn't work that way and it's never Mm. going to. So... I think that power of anger is to, to recognize, in recognising injustice, you have to actually recognise the whole injustice. And to express that anger, I mean, it's, you know, you really start to look at it and think about it too much and understand the details of it and the anger can make, like, your chest wants to burst with it. Yeah. It's so I, ju- I just read both of your books and, <laughs> and they're electrifying with their justifiable anger. But, yeah, I get that. I get that. that's also like, very funny. Radioactive with anger at the moment, but it's also very threatening for the the targets of that anger. And you know, mine's specifically targeted, say, at, at journalists. And there's nothing like having a nation of journalists pissed at you, <laughs> particularly when you're trying to release a book. Um, but it's. I think it's also. I found it helpful to understand the anger to understand the defensiveness, the reactions to my anger, why it's, it feels so threatening. I find yeah. that helpful because it means that I don't take it as personally. They're not angry with me. They're angry with me pointing out the objects of their oppression. Right. The complicity in that oppression. And yeah. I understand that. And right. I think That's very mature. <laughs> 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm not so sure that I'm. I'm with that um, level of maturity. I think both of you have brought up this sense of the irrationality of the systems. Almost, if there was a logic, we would be more effective in being able to dismantle it. But it is, as you've both said, entirely ludicrous what what the hierarchy is built on. So there aren't, you know, there aren't obvious ways to dismantle it because it's based on all of this privilege and fear and maintaining the privilege. Um, I guess just to end with, because I can't believe we've gotten to the end of our um, time now, is um, I just wanted to say that it is a privilege to be able to ask you about these books. I think they're important books and I want to exhort our audience to go out and buy them or actually get online and buy them. Um, I think these are conversations that we need to be having right now in Australia and I want to close just by asking you, what do we do now? I know that's a big question, but you've each thought long and hard about these issues and we can benefit from your deep thinking. What can we do on an individual level, maybe at a collective level, to affect change? about sexual violence and about white womanhood's role in racism. How can our audience get on board? Mm, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, well, it's such, this is probably the hardest question to answer. A, because um, we're directing these questions or this challenge to people that are part of a group that we don't belong to, right? I mean, I know you are a journalist, but you're yeah. directing it at a type of journalism rather than specific journalists. Um, and I, you know, and I'm asking white women as well as white men to, to really have a think about um, what really is, our society really is, right? And and and, and how. Uh, what their position within that society actually is, not just how they want to to, to see themselves. Uh, I don't like, you know, I'm not there when white people get together. I have no idea what goes on, you know. So like, um, it's in it's when you're aware amongst each other. Like that's that is where these sorts of ideas that I hope to you know permeate permeates. It's not just as simple as having more brown and black people visible. It's really not. Um, and I think um, ultimately, like, what I would ask is, if, you know, if we're talking about what can individual people do, it, it's a question of can, um, we all feel like, you know, when we feel ourselves challenged, when we start to get defensive about, and that happens to me in, in whatever, you know, in, in circumstances, and, and about, you know, just stop and ask, like, what, what is really like what is really what is that emotion? What is and and are you going to carry on with this feeling of being victimized or this feeling of being under attack or are you going to ask where it's coming from? And I think the main, you know, what I want to see more, you know, I want women of color in particular, but all people to be allowed to feel this full spectrum of emotions, and that, that means sometimes we going to get angry and maybe sometimes the anger isn't necessarily always justified. I'm not trying to say we're always white, you know. Uh, we're human. Sometimes we mess up, and sometimes oh, I've said things that I've regretted. Like uh, so, 
But the problem, you know, for me that is that we're not ever allowed, but this is at the same time as being positioned as always wrong and always emotional and angry, we're also these unmeetable standards of perfection. You know, we're not allowed to slip up even slightly without being so heavily punished for it. So uh, I think for me, what I, A, you know, don't do it. What I discuss in the book, this whole thing, like don't, it might be easy for you if you're a while, it might be easier for you to be able to lean into that racial privilege and say she's attacking me and I feel really bad and she's making me feel bad. Um, and if you see it happen so often, it happens, and I see this happening in the work context, I've seen it happen online, it happens and no one says anything about it. Do they let it happen? So, okay. So other people to call it out? So is that a good thing for other people to call it out and say this is what's going on here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, this whole concept of call-outs is also really problematic. We won't go there. Actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, really. But in that in that literal definition, like, yeah, like, like it's, it's for me, and I say this early in the book, what, what really allows all this to perpetuate um, it, uh, and is that it's the, it's the behaviour from the onlookers, right? It's what they choose to do. Okay. Because if, if if two people are arguing and one is playing, one's playing the victim, the other, and and the other one's getting all the blame, that's not going to mean anything outside of the context, right? None of this stuff happens in in a vacuum. And I guess you know it's a sort of quite similar to what what Jane's getting at. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the sense of it's how the it's how media reports on these you know on domestic violence it's how our politicians talk about it and 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 how police talk about it that that continues or allows this culture to perpetuate it um yeah. silence around or the acceptance around it um and yeah like it, it's it's about it's a, it's a culture-wide problem whether yeah. it's um I'll let Jane jump in. Great. That is great. What is great about that just from the top of my head is that the bystanders have a role to play. Absolutely. You know, so so that's something that people in the audience can go, okay, you are responsible if you you if you don't stand up for this. If you if you don't, you know, you have a role to play in saying that's not acceptable, I guess. And just real, I'll be really quick on wrapping up because you just remind me. I talk a little bit about Ida B. Wells, who's a, a, a black journalist during the segregation era, who did more than any other any other person, definitely any other journalist, to 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 document what was happening in the South in, in with the lynchings. And she was very very adamant that the 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 the, the, the white the white people who thought it was wrong and didn't like it didn't do anything or didn't say anything for whatever reason, then they were just, you know, they were also culpable because yeah. you've got this absolute injustice happening before your eyes, but for your own reasons, decide to just be quiet and go along with it. So, yeah. Yeah, very, very strong example. Okay, Jane, we're going to um, leave with your comments on this. Um, I'm trying to remember what the <laughs> what the initial what the final question was. Oh, how can we affect change about this stuff in our lives and in our communities? And your project is an example of how that works. So maybe you telling us about something that you've you know something that you've done that has affected change. Um, 
Well, I think it's it is that that pushing back on those subconscious ideas and prejudices and stereotypes that we don't even know that we have but dominate so much of our thinking. And one of the best and most common reactions I get to fix it was, oh, my God, I'd never seen it before, but now I see it all the time. Now it's, it's everywhere in front of me and it's because I've spent years pumping this out and and so the people start to, you start to challenge those preconceptions and then it starts to jar. Like the, the um, how we all spent years pushing back on the, the all-male panel. And yes. now if you saw an all-male panel, it'd, it'd, like it would be a bit of a shock. But it was all the time. It was so common, like writers' festivals and, and TV and everything. It was just normal. But it took years and years of people saying, you know, making jokes about it, making memes about it and pushing back on it. And then from there, again, and I'm, which I'm really glad to see happening a lot now, is people saying, well, I'm not going to have an all-white panel. And I get emails where, you know, you're invited to speak on a panel and, and before I even get a chance, somebody else is going back going, well, I'm not going to be on that panel. I'm not going to sit there on an all-white women panel. Don't be stupid. Can we get somebody else in? Can we split it up? Can we do more? So those kind of things, I think, that we look around and just see in everyday life. So when we turn on the TV or open the newspaper or get on the tram and see the billboards out the window, starting to change those preconceived ideas of what the world should look like, which is men being all white and big and powerful and strong and women being all slim and pretty and sexually available without having any sexual agency. Mm. Once you start changing those expectations, it jars at first oh, hang on, that's not what I expect women to look like or that's not what I expect power or discussion or politics to look like. And then keep pushing it until it becomes the new normal so that then when the, those old power structures try and reassert themselves, because they always do, that becomes jarring. Like the all-male panel, which is now, would be laughable, but it would yeah. be a recognisably jarring thing. We need to keep changing those expectations of what is normal that um, I remember talking once about a, a picture of a CEO, CEO of some, one of the big banks and I put a picture up um, of this talk that I was doing on the PowerPoint and it was the, the sort of person that you would expect. He was a man in his 50s, he was white, he obviously came from money, looked like he'd been fed fillet steak and strawberries all his life and then I put up a photo of an Aboriginal woman and said, what's your first thought? How did she get there? How did she get that? What, what was she given? Mm. whereas you expect the white guy to have that job you don't think to yourself what did what was he given and he was absolutely given something to get there yeah so challenging all those expectations of what we think we should see and yeah. we do see that most of the time we don't recognize how much it's reinforcing those stereotypes it's all projection. So that's basically what fixed it is anyway I think that's fantastic and I think one of the um, examples of how effective that has been is in, well, paradoxically, the appalling reportage of um, the recent um, domestic violence murders of Hannah Clark in Queensland where the sections of the media said family, man, you know, I, I kind of... But the response to that, the public response to that was so overwhelming that yeah. like, the pushback was immediate and yeah. the, the way they changed the reporting was so quick because they were doing it on their, oh, well, this is how we've always done it. He's such a good guy. He can't be responsible. What did she, what did she do to drive him to it? Yeah. 
But the change happened really quickly. And it was an audience response to that exactly what I was talking about of, no, that's not what we want. That's not how the world is. That's not how this should be happening. And we are going to object. Yeah. And it did strongly. Like there was no pussyfooting around with this. It was a real bang. Yeah. No, this is not okay. A very strong, angry, angry response. Yeah. That most people recognise as legitimate, justifiable anger. Now, that would not have happened five years ago. Yeah. It and didn't, I mean, it didn't happen five years ago, so we know that. Yeah. So in one sense, it's appalling that they still reported it like that. In another sense, it's very encouraging because we said, no way, we don't accept this, and it was changed within 24 hours. So, you know, is it half full or half empty? I want to I wanna, um, leave on that note because it does suggest um, that people and their expectations, the public us um, are able to say, no, that's not acceptable. We're not going to allow that to happen. And that can be the same with, you know, when white women's tears are used to silence brown women on morning TV, you know, with it, no, we're not, we're not going to put up with that anymore. So, yeah. And then acting on that consciousness. So, yeah. Okay. Um, thank you both very much for your time and talking with us. I hope we're going to have some interesting questions and um, enjoy your isolation. Thank you very much for arranging this. It's great to still be able to connect to people when we're all locked down in our houses. So we really appreciate you organising this. Yeah, same here. I'm really, yeah, I'm really pleased they were able to <laughs> find a way to, to move forward with, with some of it. Because yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a shout out to our fearless leader, Newcastle Writers Festival director, Rosemary Milson. Clap, clap, clap. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you.